Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. You're listening to Career Crossroads, and if you're new here, welcome. Otherwise, welcome back. I'm Jonathan Colleton, and this is the podcast where I talk to one person each week about all the decisions that led them to their current career path. Today, I'm talking to Zach Dessen, who is someone I knew back in university, but we probably haven't spoken in something like nine years. And I sort of knew what track he was on back then. He was a poli-sci student. And then a few years ago, I saw, I think on LinkedIn, that he was a paramedic. And I wondered to myself, how did that happen? Then more recently, I saw he was living in Europe and was no longer a paramedic. So then I started wondering, how did that happen? So I reached out and told him about the podcast and said I thought he'd be a perfect fit. And luckily, he agreed to share his story with me. So we set up a date, recorded this a few weeks ago, and I had a really good time during the interview. I think it's just so different from all the other interviews I've done based on the type of roles he's had and all the locations that get brought up in his story. So here's the interview, and afterwards we'll talk about what we can learn from Zach's career path. Zach, welcome to Career Crossroads. How's it going today? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Really happy to have you. It's uh, I keep saying this, that it's always really nice to connect with people I haven't spoken to in a long time. And you're one of those people. We, uh, we went to Laurier together back in the day, spent some time on the board for our students union. And, and then I follow along on LinkedIn and I was seeing what you were doing and I thought this guy would be perfect to tell his story for the podcast. So I'm really excited you said yes. Yeah, I was actually super interested because I I think I'd mentioned to you, I saw that you had started this podcast some time ago. And when I got your message on LinkedIn, I was quite surprised, but pleasantly so, of course. I mean, I don't know if my story is any more special than anyone else's or anything, but it's quite interesting and really kind of a nice opportunity. I was a little bit excited to go on a podcast. You know, it's my first time doing it. So, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity anyway. Oh, no, I'm glad to glad to have you here. And so we're going to start off today. Uh, well, the whole conversation is about your career, but we're going to start off by talking about before you had a career. And I want to hear what you were like in high school, uh, where were you raised, what influenced you, and how did those things ultimately lead to whatever decision you made when you finished high school? Sure. Yeah. So I grew up just outside of North Bay, Ontario. So for those who don't know, four hours-ish north of Toronto, just straight shot on the highway. Um, I grew up maybe 20 minutes outside of the city. So the city itself is maybe 50, 55,000 people. And we were in a little community, maybe 500 people. Kind of imagine living in the Canadian Shield in the forest. And there you have most of my childhood, basically. So a lot of, you know, northern Ontario type of lifestyle things, fishing, hunting, a lot of outdoors type stuff. Uh, And frankly, it kind of does tie into how I ended up at Laurier because there's not a lot of people up there, not a lot of experience with universities, uh, with kind of the bigger cities. Um, I know my parents both did not go to university. I was actually the first person in my family to. So basically when I went, I had no idea what I was doing. I saw the Laurier brochure, for example, and thought it looked friendly. I don't really know exactly what I thought, but I had no nothing to go on really. So I just kind of took a shot and picked it. And basically the same for the program. I didn't have a major or specialization when I went into my first year. I took just a whole range of different random courses because I had no concept of what I was looking for or trying to trying to get into. So essentially it was just a big exploratory mission, let's say. Um, huh. And I should add actually, but I, I didn't go directly from North Bay from high school into university. I actually lived in Peru for a while. I kind of did a bit of a gap year. So I actually worked uh, at a call center answering for a American cell phone company for a few months, maybe five or six to save the money to go down there. And then I was volunteering uh, at a volleyball camp and teaching soccer and at a kindergarten uh, in advance. So that was also pretty cool. This is my favorite part about this podcast is like, we were friendly, but we weren't really good friends in university, right? And just because like there were so many people there and you can only yeah, know sure. so many people so well, but we always got along well, but I never knew any of this about you. Like I'm only learning this right now, even though we talked a week ago in prep for, for this interview, that is fascinating. So I have a number of follow-up questions from that. Yeah, please. Now, Nipissing is in North Bay, right? Yeah, that's right. So Nipissing is another uh, large university or I guess maybe not large, but 
did you just really want to have an experience where you you went away for university because like you said it's before hours from toronto whereas you could have been 20 minutes into town at university and if you didn't really know what program or what your major was going to be was there a specific thing academically that was driving you towards laurier as opposed to just staying somewhere local I would say more so it's just about the sense of adventure. I've always wanted to go try something new. And I think that was really always encouraged by my parents as well. My mom, I can remember her saying a number of times, you know, don't stay here. Don't stay where you grew up. Go find something new. Go see the world a little bit. Uh, and especially after I had gone to South America for a little bit, there was no way I was going to go back and kind of settle down in the hometown again. I yeah, yeah. just really kind of got a curiosity to want to see more so well yeah i mean waterloo from north bay is maybe six hours driving give or take it's not a, the biggest leap in the world but it was definitely a somewhere some way i wanted to be a little bit out there on my own mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now i want to talk about the peru thing a little more too because that is something where i think at 18 years old not a lot of people are doing that level of adventure probably is there any sort of connection in your family to Peru or like, how did you end up in Peru of all places? So no connection whatsoever. This is going to be the theme of a lot of the things I think we'll talk about as we go along, just random chance, essentially, where I basically was looking at different things to do. I had contemplated going back to high school for the kind of extra year, as some people do. To, I was playing a lot of sports at the time and contemplated it. And my mom would occasionally slip a brochure to saying onto my desk or in front of me saying, oh, what about this instead as an option? And there was a sports program, basically, was the, which was the one I ended up doing. And there was a few different country options, uh, a couple of which were in Africa, but a little bit more expensive. So basically, I saw Peru. Uh, obviously, there's a ton to see there from a tourism kind of mm -hmm. backpacking 18-year-old perspective. But at the same time, I could coach volleyball and soccer and basically go and live there. And that was essentially all that it took. I just saw it and thought, oh, this seems cool. I'm going to go for it. And I had luckily supported my family. I know some people's parents would probably not have ever let them go do this kind of thing. But uh, that's the environment, at least, I was, I'm grateful to have had. That's awesome. That sounds like a really cool experience. And I guess that by the time you got to university, you had a lot more of a worldly outlook, probably, and probably more of an understanding of what the rest of the world was like, if not the whole world, other parts of the world. Because I know I was lucky in that I got to go on a trip in high school to, to Europe, but like England isn't all that different, whereas Peru would be significantly different. Uh, so that must have been really, really cool. Now, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say because it, it kind of reminded me, actually, when I first got to Laurier, the I would almost call it a culture shock because growing up in North Bay, there's not a ton of wealth there. And of course, in Peru, there's, there's even less. So mm -hmm. when I got to Laurier, my feeling was, oh, the average income or the average family here is basically the wealthiest household or person in North Bay is, is basically everyone here. So it was a lot of kind of coming from let's say a developing country situation and then arriving into university fairly shortly after and just having a really hard adjustment period. I remember that pretty distinctly. Yeah. And that is, I think that's something a lot of people go through a version of some sort of shock when they get to university. For me, it was all of a sudden my 98 that I got in my Roman Civ course was not a 98 in the university version <laughs> of that course. Not. Yeah, no, I, uh, I wrote a very comparable essay and it was like, I literally almost got half the marks I had in high school. So it was, uh, it was a dramatic shift and a lot of people have their own version of that. Now, for you, not knowing when you got there what you were going to major in, or it doesn't sound like you really had a strong feeling about what you wanted to do long term. So how did you go about picking a major? And I guess even before the major, you have to pick a faculty. You have to apply to a specific major to get into that faculty. So what did you apply to and get in for? So I got in for arts. I can't remember exactly what. I think it was philosophy. Something really well that, that tells you how important it must have been, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, but arts as opposed to science. That's or, right. Or yeah. business or anything else. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I think I do recall some of my favorite teachers in high school and favorite classes were things like world religion and world history. And I was a little bit more interested in that side of things at the time. 
uh, and yeah, just piqued my curiosity a little bit more. And for me going in, I kind of, it, it was in a way free. I could basically choose whatever I wanted. I had no pressure or outside influence to kind of guide me in one way or the other. So essentially I kind of was free to choose whatever seemed to interest me the most. So essentially out of all my kind of grab bag of first year courses, the political science ones were the ones I enjoyed the most. Uh, I liked the dynamics of, I even just call it the way people interact with each other, power situations or not. And that kind of small psychological aspect as well. And I just kind of went with that. Okay. So majoring in poli-sci, getting an arts degree, was the experience pretty straightforward for you where you just, you took your classes, you got your marks. I know you were involved in some level of the extracurricular experience, but I know a lot of other people end up switching majors throughout university and they fail courses and they have to overcome that. That was an experience I had. Uh, what was the experience like for you throughout the rest of uni? Yeah, I actually quite enjoyed, I mean, the majority of the classes. There were, of course, a couple of duds here and there, as I'm sure everyone's experienced. But basically, I really enjoyed it. I didn't have too much in the way of struggle with uh, course content or grades. I just kind of cruised my way through. But one thing I really kind of hit me at the end was that I had no let's say, career focus whatsoever um, hmm. when I got to the end. I, w I did even do the arts co-op program. Uh, so basically you? I had a, yeah, so I had a couple of summer jobs that were kind of, I'm not sure what the word I would be going for here is uh, subsidized in, kind of I got a little bit of help in getting them essentially. Okay. But even, yeah, even after doing that, I just kind of enjoyed, like you said, being involved in the different things on campus the different student activities. And basically when I got to the last few months of school, I said, oh, I can't exactly cruise anymore. I have to try and figure yeah. out what I'm doing. But I think at that point it was a little bit late in the game. So I was, again, kind of stuck just throwing darts at the board. Huh. One thing that really I'm finding really interesting about that is that I've spoken to many other people who've done co-op. Most people don't do arts co-op though. And everybody else I've talked to, they talk about how valuable their co-op experience was. And so this is a totally different perspective where it doesn't sound like it helped you figure out what you wanted to do. And in other cases, I've heard people say it helped them figure out what they didn't want to do. Uh, at least they knew once they tried a job, like that definitely wasn't for them. But for you, was it, it sounds like it was just like you did the experience, you got some practical skills from it, but that was it? Yeah, essentially. I, I actually kind of enjoyed the the work that I did. So the one summer I was a literacy program facilitator for an adult literacy center down in Cambridge. So I was teaching math and English skills and even designed a little computer program for uh, older adults. And that was a whole, uh, let's say, not frustrating necessarily, but patience was required. Mm -hmm. it, was, it, it was interesting to see the technology gaps. But anyhow, uh, I then did for Community Living Cambridge the next summer, which is an organization that they run homes basically within the community for people with disabilities in case they need extra care during the day or, or basically just places, community spaces for people to be involved in. And I was kind of in the office there doing yeah, policy assistant work, uh, working on their internal policies and stuff. And in the end, yeah, it wasn't that it was bad experience necessarily, but I guess I wouldn't say it particularly guided me in any any yeah. specific direction. Yeah. An old boss used to say about situations like that, he was just whelmed. Not overwhelmed, not underwhelmed, whelmed. That's a good way to put it, actually. Yeah, I always like that. So then as you wrap up university, you got to figure out now, okay, what's what's next? And for a lot of people, myself included, I kind of ended up just going back to my old summer job right when university ended because uh, it was what was available to me. But what about you? Did you have some time off where you weren't able to get work? Because part of the reason why I went back to that job was it took me a while to get like a career job. So what was that like for you after university? Well, right away, I kind of I had some high hopes. I thought, oh, you know, I did well in class. Um, I kind of thought I could jump into maybe a government diplomacy type role, which was basically through my poli side degree, as you might imagine, the, mm -hmm. the glamorous uh, position everybody in my program, I think, was gunning for. But essentially, I had a few interviews that didn't pan out. And then, yeah, I went back to Ottawa where my, so my parents had since split up. So the 
home uh, old jobs and stuff was not really an option. So I was basically into a new city, living in Ottawa. I mean, as a lot of people did as well, just back with the with your parents or parents. Oh, yeah. And yeah, so that was a bit tough, a bit of a blow to the ego for sure. And then I was, let's say, set my sights on things a little bit lower. So I got a part-time position with the Red Cross working on their disaster management team. So essentially, I was helping them set up shelters in the community. Mm. So there, if there was, let's say, the base case scenario was an apartment building caught on fire and everyone had to be evacuated, there was nothing really in the community in place uh, to basically house these people for a week or two or, or however long was needed. So I was helping them to set up some things in gymnasiums. What's the plan to get beds and food and, and registration and all of that in? Uh, and then at the same time, because the income from that wasn't particularly life-sustaining, uh, I was also just working at a shoe store because it was the best mm. I could best I could find. Yeah, yeah. So from what you said between those two things, the shoe store was because you got to make money. Yeah, essentially. You, you didn't have this bright future in selling shoes. But with the Red Cross, was there a reason like what attracted you about about that role was it was it another thing where it was just a job or did it was there something compelling about it that made you want to do that yeah so for me it was at least touching the international organization space the kind of government or non-governmental uh let's say policy or yeah policy is the best way i would put it kind of moving towards societal organization and yep trying to help people along in that way and and make some change in a yeah, policy sense, not, not necessarily directly, but kind of moving that way because, the, yeah. I mean, everybody knows the Red Cross as the you know, global giant of, of humanitarian work, essentially. So I thought, yeah, this is a good place, perhaps, as a stepping stone. And thinking about it, the Red Cross sort of proves that our social safety nets aren't solid enough, right? If, if our government social safety nets were solid and covered off our bases, things like the Red Cross, organizations like the Red Cross wouldn't need to exist, right? So you're sort of proving a point by, by working with that organization that the policies we have don't cover off every eventuality. So organizations like this are filling in the gaps. Yeah. And actually, now that you mentioned it, you do really kind of see that out there. I know most people would say, oh, you, if you think of the Red Cross, you're thinking of work in Africa or other less developed countries where they're giving out food. But really here, it's if somebody loses their home or gets uh, evicted as a fire, whatever happens, mm -hmm. there's not necessarily anything for them to do. If they don't have the money to go to a hotel for the night, they need somebody to help them. So that's exactly right. The social safety net has that little gap there. And people who are kind of doing okay, but not without without any like extra cash reserves i would say yeah. or yeah any safety net of their own mm -hmm. okay so you're in this part-time role with the red cross and i'm also curious whether you not or not you found it exciting because it's i i would imagine it's like a boring day is a good day in that in that job right like you, you want nothing to happen and you're there in case so generally, yeah. So a boring day for me is a good day for everyone else, let's say. Yes. But at the same Still time... Still boring for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So at the same time for me, it wasn't particularly exhilarating. Um, sometimes, uh, some days, some challenges were very interesting. But for the most part, especially because it was only part-time, I didn't feel like I could really engage and grow whatsoever mm -hmm. in the role. So... That kind of eventually, so it was about a year that I was doing kind of both of those things, um, maybe just shy of a year. And then I did eventually just kind of get antsy and decide I need to go either have some more excitement in what I'm doing or, you know, something that's a little bit more challenging on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. Now, were you looking over an extended period of time or is it one of those things where because you just felt like you needed to move on to something else, the first thing that seemed more exciting or, or maybe was full-time that you found was the thing you jumped at? Or did you kind of filter through a few options before you pick something? There was one main option I had really considered. So my grandfather was actually a fighter pilot and I had always, you know, you get, it's a bit of a romantic concept of a career. Oh yeah. And Top Gun <laughs> really made yeah, us all want to be fighter pilots. Essentially. So especially you can imagine I was maybe 22, 21. 
thinking, yeah, I can, you know, follow in his footsteps. Maybe I'll join up. So I actually went fairly far. I did all the physical testing, all the um, written tests and stuff. Basically got to the point where they asked me to sign my name to enlist. And I, I took some time. I really thought about it and decided, no, you know, I don't want to be kind of constrained to where I can go and what I can, where I can live. Yeah. And, well, and those are long contracts, right? Like, yeah. Particularly fighter yeah. pilots. I, I, I was very interested in joining the military at a couple points in my life. And I recall that if you signed up to be a fighter pilot sometime around 2000, I don't know, seven, it was like a 13 year contract you had to sign because of all the training you had to do. And, and then how long you sort of had to stick around so they could justify the cost of how expensive it is to train a fighter pilot. So was it like an incredibly long contract that was, yeah, I think I actually recall it was a little bit longer than the doctors had to do at the time. So, you know, they have the, the military trains doctors for a, you know, exchange for service for so long. And I'm yeah. pretty sure it was as long or even longer because the training is longer, in fact. Wow. Yeah. So that I turned away. Yeah, <laughs> I, turned I guess away so. From that. So I would say that was an option I strongly considered and then backed off from. Um, and then I found, yeah, so emergency services, essentially. Um, I think police was a little bit too close to the military for my liking. Um, but I saw a paramedic as an option because it was a bit of kind of using your brain, but also a bit of, you know, jumping into the action and, you know, getting your hands dirty in a way. Mm-hmm. That's a little surprising to me. And I know that you were paramedic and that was one of the first reasons why I, I reached out because I knew you had done that, but I know you're not doing that anymore. And I was like, how did he, how did he go from poli side to paramedic to what he's doing now? With being a paramedic, I guess as an outsider, I've always assumed that most of those people would have some sort of science background, a medical background, you know, biology and things like that. Not so much with poli sci. So how do you get into becoming a paramedic? What's that process like? So basically there is in Canada, it might not be Canada wide because it's a provincial, provincially regulated profession. Okay. But... In Ontario, you have to do two years in a college program. So there's uh, seven or eight of them, I think, that are registered. And that was rigorous. Of all the time at Laurier I spent in classes, I, that was nothing compared to the paramedic training school. Wow. So, Where'd you go? Uh, so it was at Centennial College, actually, kind of out in Scarborough. Yeah. So actually, they have a partner program with, um, I work at U of T Scarborough. So the paramedics are always walking around our campus. And uh, I'm one of the advisors for our emergency response team. And a lot of them are in that paramedical program. Yeah, for sure. So that's exactly the program, basically. Mm. Uh, I didn't do the U of T side because I had a degree already. But basically, it was half people who are doing kind of that double degree and half people who like me who had done a degree, some people had a master's and they basically were bored or wanted something new. So a lot of kind of like minds actually coming together at that point, a lot of older students who just wanted to change, wanted to refresh what was going on in their life. So that's uh, two years and quite intense actually. You get every year tested with these scenario-based exams where you walk into a room, there's actors, there's fake blood everywhere, as the case may be. And basically, if you fail, you're out, you're out of the program, or you have to restart the whole next year. So a lot of a pretty high stress environment, but in yeah. the end, you can imagine why with the job that you end up going into in the end, that you have to be able to manage it a little bit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's that. And then when you finish that program, you get certified by the government uh, as a you know, ready to practice paramedic. And then you have to actually go out and find a job with a paramedic service afterwards. So then you go through this typical interviews. They run you through their own physical testing and scenarios and things uh, before you get hired anywhere. Okay. So when you made the choice to go to Centennial, that's a that's a move, right? From Ottawa to yep, Toronto. And so I always am interested when people move cities because there are factors that either push people towards a move or or pull them away from wanting to move and did you just feel free and open to go anywhere and do anything or did you have any factors that either almost kept you in Ottawa or pulled you away from there it's a very different experience than what I've had because I was from Toronto raised in Toronto went to university an hour away worked there for a while but then I went back in Toronto so I've I can't really relate to the experience of you know 
you weren't back home where you were raised. You were in a different city. So it's, it's totally different for me. Yeah. So that's a big part of it, I would say, because going back to where I was raised was not an option anymore. It wasn't after university. So that kind of keeps your feet moving in a way, let's say. Yeah. And then from there, I mean, I didn't have a ton keeping me in Ottawa. I had a fairly serious girlfriend at the time, but she was also traveling around a lot. So it wasn't exactly like I needed to stay there. I was happy to get my own place. And yes, moving to Toronto ended up costing me a lot more money. I needed to buy a car for the program. And I had to work uh, actually as a construction worker for a while just prior to save the money to be able to do it. Hmm. You've had these interesting jobs just to (laughs) save money for the things that you wanted to do. So I exactly I actually counted it up before uh, the call today and I'm at uh, over 15 jobs, different things like officially. And then if you count the odd jobs in between, we're well up to 30. So a lot of the stuff. Yeah, it was like once I get the idea that that's something I really want to do, if money is required, it's fine. I can kind of put my nose down and and grind out whatever whatever comes along to to particularly. If you know that stuff is only short term, right? It's it's a means yeah. to an end. It's not like you're going into something that's not of interest and you're going to be stuck there. Like, you know, it's I'm doing this until this date and then I'm out of there. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I've worked different things since I was oh, 10 years old or so. We've always been kind of scrapping around for odd jobs. It's just the way we were as a family. So it's really not yeah, not a big deal, not a big inconvenience. If I have to mm-hmm. do it, I have to do it and it's no problem. But yeah. really... Like I could have stayed in Ottawa and probably saved a ton of money. But in the end, I decided if I'm going to be a paramedic, then I want to do it in the biggest city in the downtown, which is where I ended up working because uh, that was, I guess, my goal in the end. I thought mm-hmm. this is the place to do this job and really get the full experience of it rather than kind of working in a more rural area where you're not so busy and not seeing yeah, the, the whole schedule of possibilities, let's call it. Yeah. So, so you were really in it for the experience and that was the, the driving force behind your location and all of those things. And I guess then things like the money side of it, I'm curious about a little bit because my, I have no concept and and we don't have to get into like what kind of money paramedics make, but I've heard that particularly in the United States, they make horrible money and uh, maybe not everywhere. Maybe it's some places, not others, but was it ever difficult for you to make the call to after university go into another school program like did you have to worry about student loans and things like that yeah so i have been taking out my osap since first year university and i still have a whole pile of it uh for various reasons i mean as you might guess i'm kind of jumping around from different things from time to time so i'm still working those down but in terms of concern you know i just kind of thought well, I can either, you know, grind at something that I'm not enjoying and not really making that much money. So the opportunity costs just would be huge, I think, for doing something like that. Or I can, you know, take out a few more loans if need be, and I'll pay them back eventually, you know, like, so uh, just for an example, the paramedics in Ontario actually do quite well. Oh, okay. Um, Compared to the States, a double the salary you might have heard, maybe a little more. Okay. Um, So yeah, here, because I think the training is so rigorous and obviously the responsibility is so high, um, I'm not sure why exactly Ontario kind of pays a pretty good wage to the paramedics, but I know even probably other Probably because they deserve it. That's probably well, why. Well, that's what I like to say, and that's what my friends would tell you too that are still working there. But I know in BC, for example, they get paid less than in the US, so I don't know. Really? Yeah. So it's, yeah, And I- in the Nova Scotia, they're making $14 an hour maybe. Jeez, like I made four. T- I made twelve bucks an hour, like packing furniture in a truck. Which yeah. there is a lot more. No, you know anybody who's doing that job, like it's hard work. Good for you, but there's probably a lot more skill involved in being a paramedic. And if you have to go through all these years of schooling, it seems crazy to only make that kind of money. Well, that's the thing. I think what they do in a lot of places is kind of we call it the hero discount, where people really love what they're doing. And they feel like they're, you know, doing good in the community so that they'll maybe take and accept a little bit less money. So this happens yeah. definitely in the States big time. And and I think that's a big reason why uh, maybe they're being taken advantage of a little bit. Yeah, that's that's really, really unfortunate. Uh, 
getting back to to your story though so you, you said you you wanted to work in downtown toronto when you were on the program and you ended up getting a job in downtown toronto so what is life like as a paramedic what are the what's the hours like how just kind of insane of a job is that like because i've I, I wouldn't say i've always had a nine to five job i my work has flexible hours because i've got to do programming when students are available but it's uh i'm not working overnights and i imagine that you were at some point so tell me about what that job was like yeah so that it's really hard to describe it properly unless you've done it but i will do my best uh for sure i'll start with the shift work that is a beast of its own let's say so you'll work 7 a.m to 7 p.m so all shifts are 12 hours often longer because if you get uh, an emergency call near the end, you you got to see it through, obviously. So yeah, you can sometimes talk 14 hours, 15 hour shifts, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. is one. Sometimes you get 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. But there is, of course, the 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. night shifts, which were my absolute least favorite. Uh, they really didn't agree with me whatsoever. You just start feeling sick after a few days and especially yeah. the switching back and forth just really, really takes a toll on you. Yeah. But, and I know that I think for, for police officers who, who do night shift, day shift, they do like two weeks day at a time, then two weeks night at a time. And maybe it's different in different areas, but is it like that at all? Or it's just whatever random shifts you're getting scheduled for? To some degree, there's a huge variety of the different schedules you can, you can work on. So at one point, when you first start, of course, you're just getting anything and everything. So you could work a, a day shift and then the next night come back in. Two days over, two days later, you could be back on a day shift again, or you can be doing a bit more. By the end of it, I was maybe doing two weekends in a row of night shifts with nothing in between, and then maybe four weeks of uh, more daytime-oriented ones. So it's a little bit more manageable, but also it's a little bit older and a little bit more tired. So at any point, the night shifts never stop hitting you hard. They never, never stop. They never feel good. Let's say. Yeah, I would expect not. So beyond the shift work then, like what's, that's got to be a pretty intense job. I imagine there's probably a lot of calls where at the end of it, nothing major happens. And then there's a lot of calls where you're seeing some of the most intense stuff that anybody has to deal with. So like how, as much as you can describe that, how, what is that like? Yeah, so we always used to kind of describe it as you're seeing the worst hours of people's lives essentially so nobody's calling if they're having a good day yes so i have a friend who was training to be a cop and he said the exact same thing like nobody calls when somebody's having a good time so yeah over time even though you're right there is oh 90 95 of emergency calls are, are pretty routine they're not true emergencies that would make a tv show for example just people who need help, like there's a lot of helping people uh, with mobility issues and a lot of chronic disease management and just making sure people integrate with the health system and the community health services in a, a way that's beneficial for them. But then, of course, you get the 5%. And that's kind of the hard, the really hard part for me was that you never know what's coming next. So you could be sitting there and the, every station, if you happen to be in the station, has it's an alarm of sorts that goes off if there's an emergency call that comes in and you kind of start over time to dread the sound or you, you get the, let's say, fight or flight response a little bit, the stress response when you hear the sound because you don't know exactly what's going to come because over time, even if it is a really small percentage of your emergency calls, you do start seeing quite yeah, upsetting, traumatizing, nasty stuff. Uh, get abused a lot from time to time, verbally, physically. A lot more than, you know, the people who see it from the outside, uh, it gets glamorized a lot. I know TV kind of glamorizes the first responders. And um, there is that aspect where some people are really, really kind and really grateful. But there's a lot of people who could care less and you're just somebody to take it out on. Mm -hmm. um, take out their bad day, let's say. So over time, yeah, you do get ground down, especially, I know quite a few of my friends who are still there. I'm quite close. It's some. It's a career where you get really close with people you work with, especially we, it's 12 hours in a little rolling box together and yeah. you're going through some pretty intense experiences as well. And I know a lot of them now, maybe they're, they've been there around five years um, if we started together and they're having some serious mental health issues because of the way 
the job just kind of hits you and there's not a lot of support as you know in uh, Ontario for example mental health is kind of a private insurance thing it's not exactly something that's covered unless you have a really serious problem mm -hmm. so yeah over time and I mean I could feel it happening to myself too because you get a tainted picture let's say of the way people are of humanity in general because you're always just seeing people at their worst you're not getting a good sample of what most people are like most of the time so it just starts to well in my case at least darken the worldview a little bit interesting man yeah that sounds like i knew that would be intense and it definitely sounds like that's that's the way it was so i also am curious how you felt about did you ever think back about all that time you would spend into this poli sci degree and wonder about like i don't know if maybe not like have regrets but think well why am i not doing something specific to that or did you feel like what you were doing was related to that in some way or was the paramedic job a stepping stone for you onto to something else like how did you kind of did you worry about rationalizing it with the type of the first step of your career path your education you know what not really at all i kind of thought because of the way i got into it in the first place i was looking for something new something exciting and that's in the end what i found it's something different you know you get a lot of crazy stories to tell over a beer here and there but really if i thought about it and I was actually more proud that I was able to switch from something like political science into a you know medical service mm -hmm. profession. I, and I would tell people, because you'd have people ask, like, oh, what was your background? Uh, most people, you were right to assume that they're from medical sciences or pharmacy or you know kinesiology. So yeah, it was pretty interesting to kind of share that story with people in the first place. Like, no, no, I'm completely different uh, studies, completely different background. But at the same time, I mean, Laurier, the academic training I got was good, I would say. But also, it's a lot of really high-quality social training and social conditioning, I think. So yeah. you get, like, like you said, we were involved in a lot of different things. And you meet and talk to a ton of different people. And at the end of the day, being a paramedic, a good one anyways, is 90% communication. You can know your technical skills, uh, and it's obviously important that you do, but like I said, you're not using those a lot of the time. A lot of the time, your communication is your far and away number one most important tool. So I love that. I love that's that. a good soft way to skills. tie them back together. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's a hundred percent. The soft skills you get from all those extra things you're doing, and, and I'm sure some of it you got even in the classroom, but all that extracurricular experience as well is like a hundred percent soft skill practice. So it really, it's great to see how you can link that to what you ended up doing as a paramedic. Now you talked about how it, it sort of wore down on you over time or ground you down because it's uh, it's a really difficult job to do. And so was there sort of one moment or just a buildup over time where you said like, I got to get out of here. And when that was the case, like, how do you make the call about what to do next. And for some people, I think that would be a problem. But for you, I don't get the feeling that it would be because you seem to be able to know that like you can just find something else that will interest you. Like you, you didn't seem to struggle in finding things that were going to be the right thing for you when you didn't get into a policy, you know, diplomat type job right away. Yeah, I mean, there were there's periods of struggle, I would say for sure. Like I said, the when you first when I first left uni, kind of had a big ego boost, not getting you know the dream job I wanted right out of the box. But yeah, I think just being able to bounce back a little bit and maybe accept that life's taking you in a different direction is a big part of why I've kind of been able to just bounce around, kind of yeah, mostly carefree. Um, so yeah, like you said, it wasn't really a particular moment. There were several, let's say big moments or big events that I, I was unfortunately a part of that started to build up over time. And essentially, I mean, we all know the word burnout by now. Yeah. And, and in this sense, it's the truest form of the word. It was just slowly happening. I, I didn't feel like myself necessarily. I just, just had a bit of more of a short fuse than I normally would. Uh, obviously sleeping was becoming a pretty big issue. So I just thought, you know, like I've had my experience, which is what I wanted in the first place. So it's time to move on. And for me, the first thing that popped into my mind was just going back to school and doing a master's because I kind of always thought that this is something I want to do. So really, once I kind of realized I couldn't 
sustain the the work anymore, the workload, the the stress of it. I just started looking at different programs that I could go into, and yeah, eventually I I never really lost my interest in health, which was kind of、mm. a big thing I picked up there, and the experience with all of the health systems, seeing kind of what works for people and what absolutely does not within our healthcare system, was a really fascinating topic to me. And in the end, I wanted to move into something where I could actually make a difference in a more High-level sense, I guess, because while you can really help individual people day to day, I, I, I was feeling like if you can't, you know, change the system that that they're existing within, you're not going to make any sort of sustainable difference. You're just kind of throwing yourself against a brick wall at the end of the day. I like that you can really just like package that up and explain. Why you made that jump? Because some people struggle to explain why they make those decisions, but that seemed like you've definitely thought about this before, and you you had a very good understanding of why you were going back to school, which I think is what I'm I'm trying to kind of get at. Because there are a lot of people that because they don't know what else to do, they go to school. But you actually saw a direct link between what you were doing and what you had seen and experienced, and what you wanted to do because of that. So. So you look around, you look at master's programs that exist. Which program did you apply to, get into? What was it about? So I found a few. So essentially, what I started looking at was at U of T because my initial thought was, oh, I can you know drop down to part time work and do some classes in the meantime, and you know keep my lifestyle and and income and all of that. But then I looked. I looked at the tuition for uh, for there's one program in public health or something related at U of T, and I saw the tuition fees and just thought that was a little ridiculous, considering, you know, I was still sitting on X student debt that, you know, wasn't、yeah. seeming to go away anytime soon. And then I kind of started considering because I knew for a while that school in Europe, for the most part, was free, and. I'm pretty lucky that I have two passports, so I have a French citizenship as well as Canadian. So, with that, I I don't know. It just kind of clicked that I could just come over to Europe and apply to programs there, pay I don't know, peanuts compared to what it would cost me in Toronto. Plus, you know, you get to live in Europe, so that's not exactly a bad、uh, side bonus there. Yeah, it's some really interesting programs. So what I ended up Getting into was it's called the European Health Economics and Management. So with that one, I mean, of course, the subject matter. I'd always liked economics as well as kind of a side. I think they go together with political science quite well. And obviously, healthcare management was exactly what I was looking for. And I thought it was a good kind of marriage of practical, you know, the economic side that's going to help me get a job after, as well as the more healthcare systems and, and management side that I was. More interested in for personal curiosity, let's say, and of course it doesn't hurt that the program、uh, offered exchanges in a few different countries in Europe, and then so I was sold in the end. Yeah, that sounds pretty fantastic. Now, two things about that: one, what was the city that you did that program in? Yeah, so that was in Rotterdam. I started in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Okay. And then I did also six months in Innsbruck, which is in Austria. Oh, very cool! I, Innsbruck looks beautiful from every picture I've ever seen. And the second question about that, though, is the name of the program that you said. It sounds like it's specific to the European healthcare system. So, did you imagine that by going into this program, you would be staying in Europe to work in their system afterwards? Not necessarily, but what I Did think was that because Europe as a whole doesn't really have one healthcare system, right? It's 26 right. countries, each with their own system. So for me, I thought, you know, I know the way Canada's works pretty well. I know Canada's government institutions. So I thought if I went back, also another reason I didn't really want to stay and kind of learn from that perspective was I、yeah. thought it wasn't going to give me any new perspective. I guess let's say. So basically, in the program, you learn about. Oh, there's all kinds of different setups and the way people get paid for medicines, or the way doctors are incentivized to treat or not treat certain things.、Um, but of of course, of course, across you know ten, twelve, fifteen different countries、uh, at the same time. So I thought, in terms of perspective, this was a just a far superior option, let's say, and to actually learn about you know the differences, the pros and cons of different healthcare systems and the way they work. 
I love that logic because so my wife actually has a master's of public health from uh, Western and okay. she did a practicum for her program and I was trying to tell her, I was like, go do it in Japan. I, I was like, go oh. to a country with a better healthcare system than us and learn all about it. And really it was like 50%. I thought it would be good for her future and 50%. I thought I would take time off work and go stay with her while she was doing it because oh, I've course, always why? wanted to go to Japan. So I thought like that, exactly what you're describing, like going and getting a perspective that's different than the one you already have can be super valuable when it comes to getting, not just getting a job after that, but excelling in whatever career you want to be in and, and really impacting change, which is what you were talking about. Like, that's why this program was of interest to you because you saw ways that the system could be better and, and you wanted to be a part of making that better. So that's just a really good perspective to have. And I'm, I'm just repeating that so that if anybody's listening, they really, it drills into their head that you can expand your horizons and that can be better for, for you, for everyone else. Uh, I just love that so much. So, okay. So tell me about, about that program or how long is it? And you did that exchange in Innsbruck. And at the end of that, I imagine you have this world of possibilities at the end of it. So just tell me all about it. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, when I first got to Rotterdam, I mean, it was my first time living abroad basically since I was in Peru. So that was kind of a bit of a new experience. The Netherlands, I will say, is the easiest possible country if you're coming from Canada to adjust to. I believe Super that. friendly. Everybody speaks English. There's not that much of a difference, really. No, true. I Amsterdam is my favorite city outside of North America. And I remember when we got there, me and some buddies at the end of high school on a trip, we were like, we, we could kind of get by in France because we learned some French, but we got to Amsterdam. We were like, I don't think we're going to be able to talk to anybody here. Oh no, actually they speak better English than we do because uh, they don't have the slang terminology that we have. So um, yeah, what a beautiful country that is. Yeah. So super nice, smooth landing spot, I would say. Uh, really easy to kind of get into yeah, there's a bit of a different European lifestyle. There's a bit of a different outlook, I would say, in terms of social solidarity. So that's a bit of an adjustment, but really the best possible place to start. Yeah, and in, in terms of school, it was it was really interesting. And I think it's kind of to the point you made earlier. Because I had actually really gone out and had some experience and then thought about exactly what I wanted to study, I was really, really engaged with the classes in a way I was not necessarily in my bachelor's. Mm -hmm. I really was interested by the, the content and really wanting to engage and, and, you know, just improve my knowledge levels about, about these different subjects. So things like how health insurance systems work, how people get reimbursed or how medicines essentially come from development to market. There's this whole process that's involved. And even just things like economic theory regarding health and healthcare, which is fascinating if you're into that kind of thing. It could be a little dry for some. But in any case, it was really, really rewarding, actually, to land there, kind of settle in and, and just dive into the content and dive into the program a little bit, which was, of course, helped by the, the cohort of students I was with. Um, there were some, of course, who had just finished a bachelor's and, and gone right into school, but really international group of students. I think we had people from yeah, 30 plus different countries. And so in the end, uh, the whole thing was just a smashing together of so many different perspectives and so much different, really interesting, at least to me, information uh, about health and health systems that yeah, it went by really fast, actually especially uh, considering my third semester was in Innsbruck, which is uh, a ski paradise, as you may or may not know. Yeah, I'm sure you hated it there. Uh, terrible, terrible time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and then to move on, I mean, you have to do a master thesis when you're there. So it's two years uh, in Europe. And then for the last fourth semester, essentially, you spend the whole time writing your thesis. It's not quite as involved as a PhD, but basically you still write, I don't know, a 90-page paper, um, which I ended up doing mine on informed consent. And basically, if you could change different wording to get people to opt in or opt out to placebo surgeries, which is a whole separate concept on its own. But basically, you have to get a supervisor to manage your thesis process and kind of support you. And the one I ended up choosing, he came into class one day and said, 
hey, I, I am a professor here sometimes, but mostly I'm in Australia. And if anyone wants to come and work on projects with me there, you can do that. So me and one or two other friends basically jumped at the opportunity and said, yeah, sure. So actually, I was in Australia, yeah, maybe about a year ago. I was there right now um, working on my paper and my thesis uh, just basically prior to COVID starting. That's where Man, I was. You think you know what someone's story is going to have, <laughs> and I had no idea there was an Australia trip in the middle of a uh, in the middle of this as well. So, yeah, what, what was that like then in Australia, living there during COVID? You can't really well, and Australia dealt with it a little differently than than I mean. Now we can talk about how three different countries dealt with COVID if we want to, but that would take forever anyway. So I guess just talk about what it was like moving to another place. What kind of research or work were you doing there with your thesis with him? Yeah, so it was nice. I mean, we were excited to go. I think in February 15th, because it was a couple of friends as well that all kind of signed on to do their research there. We got a place uh, near the beach. We were surfing every day. Kind of, It started off exactly as planned. It was really, really nice. We were doing a lot of um, different projects. So I was doing one, actually, I'm still kind of working with them a little bit on research impact assessment which essentially means if you're going to get grants from the government to do X, Y, Z research, you have to be able to prove why it's actually valuable to society in the first place. So there's this whole school of processes and, and analyses you can apply. And essentially, I was doing a lot of work on that in the cardiovascular researcher space. Uh, and then, of course, my, my proper thesis research itself, um, which... Yeah, this is a little more economically technical, let's say. I wouldn't necessarily recommend anyone to read it, but if it was interesting from an academic perspective. Yeah, and I think we were there maybe six months, or sorry, six weeks, and then everything started shutting down everywhere. And that was a really hard spot to be in because we were supposed to be there until July. And now we're talking maybe March 20th, give or take, and everything's shutting down around the world. And we have no clue if this is going to be, you know, a humanity ending pandemic or not at this point. Right. It's just panic. I don't know if it made the news in Canada, but the Australians were panic buying toilet paper like crazy. Oh, man, we had no toilet paper available anywhere around <laughs> Toronto. It was a nightmare. Okay. And I'm it all started, I think. Everywhere. Yeah, everybody was ridiculous everywhere. And it all started the day. I think that where Trudeau got on the news and said, like, if you're a Canadian, now's the time to come home. And that was when we all knew, like, uh oh, this is this is bad. So, yeah. Yeah. So essentially, we were sitting there, you know, get a bottle of wine, bring it to the beach every night and just talk about what the hell we were going to do, because everyone's government was kind of putting out the same message. Uh, the The one girl was Dutch, the one guy was German, and they really kind of antsy, like, oh, flights are starting to get canceled. If we don't go now, we're not going to leave. And so in the end, we were going to stay. I was going to stay if everyone kind of stayed, because otherwise we're kind of alone. Who knows what happens? Mm -hmm. But in the end, uh, we all took off back to our homes. So I was actually lucky. I think I had three flights canceled the week I was supposed to leave. Thankfully got refunded, but Basically, even the day I got to the airport and I was supposed to have a flight, I got bumped and then was waiting in line for three hours. Everybody's panicking. They were kicking Australians off the plane and because they're not allowed to leave the country even. Hmm. Yeah, it was just a nightmare situation. It was a high-stress uh, type of situation. The question that comes up to me about that is when you say everyone was going home, where are you calling home at this point? That's a good question. Uh, so my dad lives up near Alaska. And right on the BC, he lives in BC, but oh, it's maybe 10, 20 kilometers from the Alaska Panhandle border, kind of in, it's a First Nation community where he lives there. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was the easy choice because rather than fly back all the way across Canada, I could just get into Vancouver, take another flight up to where he's living in and just kind of relax. You know, if, if this is going to be an apocalypse, uh, at least I'm going to be, you know, they have a little self-sustaining farm up there. It's a quite a beautiful place, actually. And then in the flip side, you know, if, if it's not all that bad, but we're stuck somewhere, 
at least, you know, I can sit there and work on my research and, uh, and kind of continue on what I'm doing from, from mm-hmm. a nice, uh, situation, let's say. Yeah. Okay. So you, you go from Canada, you fly to Europe, then Europe to Australia. Do you go mm-hmm. over India when you're flying? In that it was direction? through Abu Dhabi. Through Abu Dhabi. And yeah. then you go Australia to Canada. So you flew around the whole world uh, yep. due to you, where you were studying and then having to come back to Canada. Well, I know you're not in Canada now. So tell me about as COVID went on and, you know, COVID's just an aspect of it, but your career and how this really affects you and your career. How, like, how long were you in BC? And then when did you assuming you're done now, your, your thesis, when did that finish? And then how did you end up where you are now? Okay. So yeah, it gets a bit convoluted in the, the pandemic times, but basically I was in BC for almost two months. Okay. Uh, working on my thesis, still working for the other research institute on the impact assessment work. And I also was kind of recruited to do a couple of uh, academic articles about COVID as it was, you know, obviously the hot topic at the time. Yeah. So I had enough on my plate actually, and it was nice to be there, but frankly, the internet was terrible and it was, it's by satellite there. And I could eventually, I took on so many projects and I just couldn't get anything done. Mm. Uh, and I knew my brother, he'd lost his job at the very beginning. He's a, he was a, a chef basically in the restaurant industry. And he was out of work just by himself uh, in a flat in Ottawa. And I said, you know what? I can kind of go have some family time, which I haven't had forever, um, and just kind of work on my stuff or kind of keep going with that. Um, so I, I went back to Ottawa to kind of finish off my research, finish off those papers that kind of all wrapped up around September. So I defended my thesis and officially graduated my master's. I had a couple of publications, which was super nice. um, Very cool. Because then I started looking at jobs basically at that point. Um, I had a couple of freelance researching gigs going. So that kept me going for a while. But I kind of knew I was going to want something in Switzerland and the WHO kind of space. That was going to be my, you know, number one target or something kind of in the European policy space. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to be applying and targeting these jobs, I might as well be there. I don't need a visa to be there. Again, super lucky in that regard. So I was also just freelancing. So I thought, well, this is kind of a weirdly good opportunity to go and just live some places uh, that I've always wanted to. So I actually went to France in the south, a town called Biarritz, and it's just a surf town. So I was living there, working, surfing, uh, just kind of applying Again, for jobs. tough, tough life. <laughs> tough, tough stuff, I know. Uh, but I spent some time in the mountains in southern Germany once it kind of got into a more winter feel and was kind of just, yeah, enjoying coasting a little bit with the research work that I had. But over time, I don't know if anyone or if you've done any of the freelancing, but it gets a little exhausting to chase people for your contracts and, you know, especially with the time zone. I was still working for the people in Australia, oh. uh, two, two different, yeah, two different groups in Australia. So that was a bit of a nightmare with the time zone. You either have to wake up at 6 a.m. for meetings or do them at 9 p.m. Yeah. And I was looking for something eventually a little more stable. So I kind of put my... Yeah, like you said, you know, you're not one worrying about rejection necessarily. You're just kind of throwing out applications at things you think might be nice. And I really had the luxury of having some work and some income. So if something wasn't for me, I could turn it down. It was really, really nice place to be at that time. And I eventually found kind of exactly what I wanted. So in the public policy, public health policy space, Something that, you know, once we're all out of the pandemic, I can travel around a little bit for. Uh, something I'm also working with the WHO on. And uh, living in Brussels, uh, also, you know, it's a really cool city, but also really international and kind of a hub for all kinds of different things. So I kind of found that. They went through went through the interview process. They took me and I had jumped on it. And yeah, basically here I am now, maybe eight weeks, nine weeks into that. Yeah, so you, you're very much, it's it's new to you, but it seems to me as an outsider hearing this story that you've you've got this background in political science and then you go and work in uh, as a paramedic and work in that industry and then 
you go and do the masters and now you've sort of merged all these things together in this career that's all about healthcare policy and even though some of these jobs kind of are self-contained in the moment they've all sort of come together to help you with what you're doing now that's what it sounds like to me anyway yeah you can i i can actually tie it all together into a neat package for this job for example so i'm working for a medical society uh, of medical oncologists so in terms of you know knowing the healthcare terminology how to speak to healthcare professionals uh, how to interact with them on that level uh, all the all that i learned as a paramedic and that's really helpful in this space. Uh, and of course, the communications aspect, the political science, I mean, I'm working directly in policy, so it's, it is obviously relatable, but there is also this aspect of it's an international organization. So there's diplomacy and people skills. And like you said, the soft skills that are really, really relevant as well. But of course, even the, you know, the core knowledge of the economics and the health systems inventory basically is also really tied into it. So I, the projects I'm working on now are also directly related to, you know, what I studied and, and which, you know, after undergrad, that was kind of what I was chasing, but I ended up taking a, yeah, a bit more of a winding road. That might be an understatement, but uh, in the end, yeah, it kind of all comes together. Um, not that I saw it coming in any way, but yeah, I guess I just was taking stabs at different things and, over time, you start to see the links and uh, how it all comes together for you. Beautiful. Well, it seems like you really found a place. You're you're settled in into something that you're you seem really happy to be doing. So, uh, congratulations on that. And and really, thank you so much for explaining that whole story. I hope that there's some people who are going to listen to this and really get something out of it because I already know that I have. So, thanks a lot. No problem. Yeah, I hope so too. Uh, it's a bit, yeah, a bit of a chaotic story, a bit of a chaotic life, but I wouldn't change anything. All right. So that is Zach's career path. And he has literally circled the globe and then some to get where he is today in Belgium. And I'm pretty sure he set a career crossroads record for the most countries lived, studied, or worked in. I counted Canada, Peru, Netherlands, Australia, Austria, France, Germany, and now Belgium. And it's making me think that I should start collecting stats on things like this so I can do some sort of year-end roundup of all the countries the people I've talked to have lived or worked in. But anyways, Zach is certainly well-traveled, and in all those travels, he's had a variety of experiences that led him to his current role. So let's talk about what we can learn from him. Now, the first thing we should look at is all the jobs Zach took that were stepping stones to get him to something else. And I'm not talking about getting experience that would get him a better job. Lots of people have those experiences. But I'm talking about the jobs that let you pay the bills so you can do something else. And Zach had a number of these. First, after high school, he wanted to go teach volleyball, soccer, and kindergarten in Peru. So he just picked up a job at a call center for a few months to save up some money. And then when he was working at the Red Cross, it was only part-time, so he took another part-time job working at a shoe store. And as he said, he didn't have any particular affinity for shoes, he just needed a job to help pay the bills while he did the Red Cross gig, which was kind of his primary job at that point in time. And then if we jump ahead a little further, when he decided to go to Centennial, he ended up working construction for a little while so we could save up money for that because he knew he had to buy a car and it was going to be more expensive for him to live in Toronto than it was to live in Ottawa. Those are just the jobs that Zach specifically mentioned, but we did hear him say he's had north of 15 jobs and maybe even up to 30 with all the different odd jobs. And this goes back to how he was raised, and he talked about how his family was always looking for odd jobs since he was 10 years old as a way to make extra money. Now, I hear that, and I think there's probably a lot of people that have too much pride and wouldn't take a job they viewed as either a step back or even a lateral step. But Zach, on the other hand, would see what he wanted and he would see what he needed to do to get there and he would just start working for it. I'm sure we've all heard people say the phrase, you do what you gotta do. And it's one of those super vague phrases that I sometimes hate. But luckily, Zach has given us a very tangible example of what that phrase really means. So I think we can learn from Zach and do what we've gotta do. Down the line, when you've arrived at a career that you really enjoy, you'll be able to look back like he did today and appreciate all the little jobs that helped you get there. 
The other thing I'm thinking about from Zach's story is that not all of us know when the right time to leave a job is. The reasons we can stick around can vary wildly, but Zach said something that got me thinking about how to nudge myself in the right direction. When we were talking about why he stopped being a paramedic, it came up that burnout was part of the problem, but he also said that he got the experience he wanted out of the role and it was time to move on. And that definitely makes me think that I, and probably many of us, can be more proactive in deciding that it's time for a change. Ask yourself, did I get what I came for? And if the answer is yes, then it's time to find something new. What's next might require some work, but knowing it's time to leave can definitely help push you in the right direction. So that's some of what I learned from Zach today, which means that this episode of Career Crossroads is coming to a close. I hope that you found this episode either entertaining, educational, or inspiring, or preferably some combination of all three. If you know someone who would be interested in Zach's career path, please share this episode with them. And if you want to hear more interviews like this, go to careercrossroadspodcast.com or follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast player out there. And if you like what you hear, please leave the show a five-star review. Come back next week to hear from Victoria, who started her career working for ad agencies in Dallas, Texas, but moved to the San Francisco Bay Area after getting recruited. After some time in San Francisco at Google, she has transitioned to an entirely new area as the learning and development onboarding experience lead at Facebook.